BC's bailout blunder. A lot of members that it was a very difficult program to access. Uh, the paperwork was kind of complicated. Millions of dollars in business grants sitting unused. And what the province is doing to fix the problem. Trouble brewing at a local coffee shop. It's about the same six to eight characters who are around all the time. And just tensions are escalating. How vandalism and other crimes are increasing with little help from the city. And a new era in U.S. politics. This is Democracy's Day. A day of history and hope. What the Biden administration means for B.C. and our economy. You're watching Global B.C. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We start with the agonizingly slow distribution of pandemic relief grants for struggling businesses. The province earmarked $300 million to help entrepreneurs through the COVID crisis. But as Richard Zussman reports, only a small fraction has actually been handed out. It's been a challenging year for Taj Taste of India. The Victoria restaurant opening in March forced to adopt to a COVID world and now told they don't qualify for BC's small business grant program. Those grants could help us sustain more. Like right now, we're short staff. We have to lay off our staff because we can't afford to pay them. The reason? The restaurant has been open for fewer than 18 months. Just one of the problems of a program so far failing to take off. For example, Harbour Air not meeting the requirements because it has more than 149 employees. The $300 million program rolled out in September, doling out just $65 million in cash and leaving $235 million still on the table. We heard from a lot of members that it was a very difficult program to access. Uh, the paperwork was kind of complicated. Some of the criteria was difficult to maneuver. Uh, but the province did listen to organizations like ours. Up to $30,000 for small businesses. The province releasing this video earlier this week to explain those changes. Overhauling in December, expanding who is eligible. Apply now, and we're going to make it through this together. We have one of the most comprehensive recovery plans in Canada, and, uh, and that's why we're starting to see the job numbers come back. Along with the requirement of having to have been operational for at least 18 months and having fewer than 149 employees, the business must be able to show that it has lost 30% of its revenues. Lack of information, lack of clarification, and also putting in criteria uh, that it's hard for many people to meet. The province keeping the doors open to more changes. We're going to continue to look at the program and find ways for it to be flexible. Uh, but we want to ensure that we were supporting viable businesses. So far, around 4,800 businesses have applied and applications are open until March 31st. Chanda hoping changes will come before that deadline with the chance his restaurant could be eligible for help. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. Nearly 5,000 people have signed a growing Change.org petition urging Premier John Horgan to close the province's border for one month. It's not the first time this has been brought forward. Last week, the Premier said he was seeking legal advice on whether B.C. could actually do so. B.C. remains under a non-essential travel advisory until February 5th that discourages but it doesn't prevent travel in and out of B.C. That's something one SFU professor says needs to change, especially as new highly infectious variants circulate around the world. The more that we can restrict people coming in from outside 
And then if they do need to, because, of course, essential travel is still um, necessary, that we quarantine people when they come into the province from other parts of the country. And we're not doing that at the moment. Dr. Lee points to success in Australia at implementing strict quarantine measures and restricting travel into the country in order to reduce its case numbers. More than 98,000 doses of vaccine have now been administered in our province as the latest case numbers are released by health officials. B.C. has 500 new infections in the past 24 hours, bringing B.C.'s total to 62,412. Another 14 people have died, which means we've now lost 1,104 to the virus. 320 people are in hospital, 66 patients in the ICU. Five, or sorry, 55,564 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 4,345 active cases and 6,905 people in self-isolation. All right, we'll bring in Keith Baldry right now for more on this. Keith, let's talk a little bit about active cases and where Mm -hmm. the concern is starting to shift. Yeah, it is shifting, Chris. COVID-19 is literally on the move. It's been dominant in Fraser Health Authority for so long, but recent weeks we've seen a real shift in the geography. Take a look at this, the current active case breakdown. Fraser Health still has the most active cases, but the percentage has shrunk almost in half. The interior now is the second most populated place in terms of active cases. The Vancouver Coastal is dropping. The north is starting to climb as well. On a per capita basis, the north is the hardest hit region in the province. Vancouver Island is even ticking upwards as well. Some examples of this, I just dug it off the map on the BC Center for Disease Control website, literally updated just a few moments ago. Places like uh, Prince George, Terrace, Kamloops, Central Okanagan now have more COVID cases between January 10th and the 16th and today than places like the Tri-Cities, Mission, uh, Richmond, Langley, uh, Maple Ridge, uh, Pitt Meadows, places where COVID was raging just a few weeks ago. The numbers are on the decline in places like that, and they're on the increase in places in the interior and the north. We see the big white uh, a ski resort, more than 200 people infected there, 20 people in Fernie now with a high positivity rate. There's less testing going on elsewhere in the province, but they're finding more COVID uh, and more, more testing in Metro Vancouver and finding less COVID. Quite fascinating to, to watch this trend develop. It certainly is. Okay, thanks very much for that, Keith. BC's fitness industry is hoping to entice uh, exercise enthusiasts back to their facilities Gym owners are making sure people know that they are following strict protocols and insisting transmissions are non-existent. But as Kylie Stanton reports, despite safety assurances, many British Columbians are opting for outdoor workouts instead. Lights, camera and action. It's important for people to get back to their regular routines. The Fitness Industry Council of Canada is getting the word out with a strong message. The bottom line is fitness facilities are safe. The public service announcement follows remarks Dr. Bonnie Henry made last week, saying gyms are not transmission sites for COVID-19. We do monitor this quite carefully, and since we put in the additional restrictions in a number of of places, we're not seeing um, transmission in those places. The measures now in place include everything from ventilation to floor markings, limited occupancy and required bookings. Physical distancing and, of course, health checks, masks and enhanced cleaning. There's sanitizer everywhere. Everything's cleaned and taken care of, so it's good. I mean, it's just a safe place to be. 
and the numbers speak for themselves. Since we opened our doors on June 1st, we've had over 1.9 million healthy and safe transmission-free check-ins from our members uh, and our staff are safe as well. Yet so many have moved away from the gym, taking their exercise routine outside in an effort to stay active. I feel safer. Um, you can physical distance. Lots of walking, bike riding. A little bit of cycling. I do home workouts. Aim for about 10,000, 12,000 steps. But for others, the pandemic has caused their fitness to grind to a halt, impacting not only their physical health. Certainly from a mental perspective, you know, exercise as medicine and really as a place and a resource and something that people can do to really just keep themselves in a good spot. This is a call to action to encourage a healthier community as we move into the next stage of this pandemic. We welcome you into our facilities. We are ready and we encourage you to just take that first step. Kylie Stanton, Global News. It looks like the alcohol or the increase in alcohol consumption in B.C. during the pandemic has had one benefit. During the holiday season, B.C. liquor stores asked customers if they wanted to add a donation to the food bank to their total. Apparently, a lot of people said yes because the stores collected more than $800,000. The liquor distribution branch says several stores had multiple $100 donations and one even took in a $500 donation. Turns out the show will go on at Vancouver's Rio Theatre, but instead of film lovers in the seats this weekend, it'll be sports fans cheering on the hockey game on the silver screen. The theatre made a pandemic pivot, a move that's now being applauded by the province. John Waugh has more. A big screen, check. Who's on tap, check. A completely reinvented business model in a desperate attempt to adhere to BC's COVID-19 restrictions. That's a check. They don't want the arts to open, so we're going to become jocks and we're going to play sports from now on. Categorized as an event, theatres like the Rio must remain closed under provincial health orders. Lee has been unable to get answers to what makes seeing a movie different than going to a sports bar. If you can't beat them, join them. Equipped with the limited food and full liquor license, The Real plans to test out its new game plan Saturday afternoon. Besser with the shot! By serving Canucks fans, hoping to watch their team play. Until the health order changes, until the health minister hears us, we're going to have to just jump through the hoops that they've provided. When asked if this was even allowed, the province stated as an event, The Rio cannot reopen. But as a sports bar, it falls under different rules. If businesses find innovative ways to operate within the safety rules, I think that's a good thing. Under provincial health orders for food and liquor serving premises, the Rio sports bar has to follow a different play. On-site liquor sales must cease by 10 p.m., no more than six patrons in a party. Groups must be two meters apart or divided by a barrier. And sound from electronic devices like the game on the big screen must be no louder than normal conversation. We don't want to be a sports bar. We would much rather be a cinema, and we think running a cinema is actually safer. Until at least February 5th, that's just not in the script. So unless it's told otherwise, the Rio Theatre will close the curtain on cinephiles and open its doors to sports fans. John Hua, Global News. Support is brewing to remove the red tape on the cross-border trade of booze. Among the supporters, Lightning Rock Winery in Summerland, which says it's easier to ship its product to London, England, than it is to London, Ontario. That's because provinces like Quebec and Ontario do not allow direct-to-consumer alcohol shipments from out of province. The private member's bill by Conservative MP Dan Albus 
offers a workaround to those provincial liquor rules by amending the Canada Post Act. There are literally thousands of examples of fine Canadian products uh, where their producers are doing such wonderful work that is not fully accessible to Canadians. During this challenging pandemic, Canadians are being told not to travel and therefore are unable to visit these these wineries, craft breweries and artisan distillers and purchase their products. Only four provinces allow direct-to-consumer alcohol shipments into their jurisdictions. B.C., Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Nova Scotia. An historic day in Washington, D.C., celebrated around the world. Democracy has prevailed. The hard work begins for U.S. President Joe Biden on the first day of his new job. That included a number of other firsts, too. That's next on the News Hour. It's a big night for the Vancouver Canucks, hoping the home opener gets them back on the winning track, even if there are no fans in the house. That's coming up later in sports. And sweet success after losing their jobs in the pandemic, how a couple with no experience started up a cinnamon bun business. That's later on the News Hour. Right now, though, you could almost hear the collective sigh of relief when the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th U.S. president went off without incident. The new commander-in-chief swearing in ceremony and speech comes as America recovers from an assault on its democracy. Paul Johnson has the highlights. Wheels up above Joint Base Andrews this morning. The world caught its last glimpse of Donald Trump aboard Air Force One. A few miles away, another remarkable sight. Instead of an audience of many tens of thousands at the National Mall, there were empty fields with flags instead of people. The eerie sight, the combined result of the pandemic and worries about security after the storming of the Capitol just two weeks ago. Lady Gaga sang the Star-Spangled Banner before those assembled on the west side of the U.S. Capitol in the traditional outdoor event that Joe Biden had insisted take place despite the situation. First up, though, was this moment for the history books. I, Kamala Davy Harris, solemnly swear. Kamala Harris is now the first woman to serve as vice president, the first person of color to have that job, and the first VP with roots in Canada where she lived for years and graduated high school. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. Then, the moment many who bought into Trump's lies about the election said was never going to happen. Biden, with his hand on an old family Bible, taking the oath of office. Congratulations, Mr. President. Biden's presidency begins at a time when America faces two major challenges, turning the tide on the pandemic and closing the country's political divide. Today, on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And that may be his hardest job, illustrated in this moment when the Bidens were joined by former presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama to lay a wreath at Arlington Cemetery. Notably absent, Donald Trump, who refused to participate in any part of America's tradition of the peaceful transfer of power. Paul Johnson, Global News.
And Global's Reggie Cicchini joins us now live from Washington, D.C. Reggie, what a historic day. It was quite something to watch from afar. I know you were a lot closer on the ground there. Describe it for us. What was the mood like? Look, there's cautious optimism, Chris, here in Washington, D.C., on the what is now a new political era after Donald Trump left office earlier today. On the streets of Washington, D.C., it was quiet, except for the rumble of trucks, tanks and police cruisers uh, with 25,000 National Guard troops still guarding the U.S. Capitol, guarding the White House. There was an ominous threat that still lingers, given what we saw just two weeks ago. But at the end of the day, all of that security on the ground in Washington paid off. There were no crises that impacted the inauguration. Reggie, it's been a long time since we had a White House press briefing. There was one today. And in it, we learned that President Biden's first call to a foreign leader is going to be to Justin Trudeau on Friday. Yeah, and this is uh, kind of similar to what we saw in November when the prime minister was the first call to Joe Biden after his victory was declared. Obviously, this is going to be a slightly contentious phone call after Joe Biden marked that executive order today to kill the Keystone XL pipeline project. Uh, obviously, something that fits in with his agenda, obviously having been uh, running on a platform of climate change policy. This is going to mark the, the beginning of a shift of climate change policy going forward in the U.S., but ultimately it is going to be uh, the number one topic that comes up on that phone call, which takes place Friday. Reggie, Paul Johnson's report mentioned that uh, former President Trump took part in almost none of the protocol that historically an outgoing president would. But he did stick with one tradition, and that was leaving a letter in the Oval Office. What do we know about that? Yeah, so this was an open question. We weren't sure if this was going to be a tradition that Donald Trump ultimately decided to stick with. But when Joe Biden walked into the Oval Office there sitting on the Resolute desk was a note addressed to him from the former president. President uh, wrote a very generous letter. I have it's because it was private. I will uh, not talk about it until I talk to him. But uh, it was generous. We do need to point out that President Trump did not concede this election. He did not talk to Joe Biden in the months after he was declared victory. So it's kind of an open question as to when President Trump might have time to talk to President Biden. Uh, we should point out as well, Vice President, former Vice President Pence did leave a letter for Kamala Harris. And we know that the former First Lady also left a note for all of her staff. But we have since found out that she didn't write any of those letters. And she actually had an aide write them and sign them for her. Chris. Mm. All right, Reggie Cicchini in Washington, thanks very much for your coverage throughout the day, Reggie. Well, the new U.S. president, as Reggie mentioned, wasted no time following through on one of his key promises, and that was revoking the permit for the controversial Keystone XL pipeline from Alberta into the U.S. And while that decision has a minimal effect on B.C., it has raised the question of just how a Joe Biden administration might affect our economy. Ted Chernecki reports. With Biden in and Trump out, any thoughts of opening the road to more trade can stop right here at the international border. America is in the throes of its worst health crisis in history, and no one expects this crossing to open anytime soon. But Biden will likely be better at getting COVID under control, and he'll attempt to get a much larger stimulus package through Congress, more than Trump ever would. But both of those, I think, are really important in shaping a more favorable macroeconomic environment from a Canadian perspective, including B.C. But financial analysts point out that the Democratic platform leading up to Biden's win was almost as protectionist as Trump's. Yes, he hopes to spend billions on infrastructure in the States with a Buy America First mentality. It will be a grind, though. There's not going to be a sudden shift 
from Trump to Biden, uh, you know, from a red light to a green light on trade. It's it's going to be tough because the you're absolutely right. The Buy America focus, the America First focus, is not going to disappear just because Mr. Trump has left the White House. It's believed most exports will do better eventually under Biden, especially BC's burgeoning green economy. The challenge for British Columbia is we need to get in there quickly. We need to start acting and making sure that we are marketing our clean technologies and our low carbon electricity and, you know, other new innovations and not walk in there, you know, trying to sell our fossil fuels. And then there's the potential for a renewed brain drain. Trump's immigration restrictions benefited Canada by forcing top talent here. Trump also dramatically lowered taxes for big corporations. Now, with Biden reopening the doors to immigration, Canadian workers may be lured south by opportunity and companies by lower taxes. Ted Chernucky, Global News. Still ahead, a cry for help that ended up costing more than it was worth. She was pretty scared because somebody tried to break in her house while she was asleep. A senior calls police after a break-in attempt. Why she's the one who ended up getting a ticket. But first, the search for a Port Moody woman missing since Monday. Well, the good news is there's not a whole lot of traffic through here right now, but the bad news is there's a three-car crash in Surrey, eastbound on Highway 10, just before the lights at 128th. Only the right lane is getting by. It's a little bit backed up on the approach. Today's Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $6 million, plus an additional guaranteed $1 million prize. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash on Highway 10 in Surrey. Is underway looking for any sign of a missing Port Moody woman. 48-year-old Trina Hunt was last seen Monday morning at about 6 a.m. Later that day, a search was launched of the forest areas near her home that now involves Port Moody police, an RCMP helicopter and canine unit, along with the Coquitlam search and rescue team and a number of Hunt's friends. If you've seen Trina Hunt or have any information on her whereabouts, contact Port Moody police. Now, the family of an elderly woman is angry with the city of Surrey after she was sent a bill from the city's bylaw office. Her alleged infraction? Calling the RCMP to report a crime. Grace Key reports. And then I set my alarm. And then that's it. Every night, 83-year-old widow May Gladwell sets her house alarm before she goes to bed. And how long you had this? Oh, I've had it over 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. And how many times has it gone off? It's never gone off before. For the first time in 20-plus years, her alarm went off at 4.30 in the morning, back on December 12th. So she called Surrey RCMP. They looked around the house but didn't see any signs of an attempted break-in. I was very, very scared. I have never been so scared in all my life. Five weeks later, she got a bill from the city of Surrey's bylaw department, charging her $112 for a false alarm. I've been paying taxes since 1960, and I lived in this house since 1972, and this is the first time I've ever called the police. With the growth of home security systems, many municipalities created ways to deal with false alarms and the increasing demand on police resources. But for May, she says this is going to prevent her from ever calling the police again. I'm living here by myself. I'm an 83-year-old widow. So, you know, who do you turn to when you get scared and something happens? The police? In a late response, the city of Surrey said the bill was reviewed and rescinded on Tuesday, the same day a family member called to appeal. Grace Key, Global News. Just ahead on the news hour, a coffee shop dealing with almost daily chaos.
Quite frankly, I'm not qualified to deal with and neither are my staff. Employees frustrated, they feel abandoned by the people who should be helping. Also tonight, a new world record that's going to be hard to beat. See what I did there? Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross, flexible small business health benefits for challenging times. Note and traffic is moving well both ways here at the Massey Tunnel. Keep in mind, though, during the overnight hours, well south of the Massey on Highway 99 South, there are lane closures for an ongoing project. Sussex Insurance has auto plan offices inside Walmarts and the real Canadian superstores throughout BC. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com. Open every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. Victoria Police believe the suspect arrested in a downtown glass smashing spree today is also responsible for yesterday's ferry heist. At least 14 businesses were targeted overnight by a man smashing windows with rocks and other objects. Police were first alerted to the mischief at half past midnight and followed the trail of destruction until they finally caught up with the suspect in the 500 block of Yale about two hours later. Police say the suspect is the same man they've been pursuing in connection with the theft of a ferry from Victoria Harbor. He's known to us uh, for stealing a uh, Harbor Ferry water taxi the previous day. He was uh, arrested for that uh, incident. He was brought into our custody, uh, as is common for, for a theft file where there's no, no violence, no uh, significant damage to property, and uh, no, not believe that there's a significant likelihood to reoffend. He was uh, released with court, a court date and conditions. Police believe there may be other sites in the community that were targeted as well, and they're asking anyone who has seen damage to contact them. The manager of a Vancouver coffee shop is speaking out in frustration tonight. He says their shop is suffering because it offers one of the few public washrooms in the area. Jordan Armstrong has more on the continual harassment staff are facing and the response from the city. They're always busy making coffee, but lately employees of J.J. Bean at 14th and Main have also been busy dealing with problems brewing in their bathrooms. These bathrooms often harbor more surprises than I'd like. Uh, it's not uncommon to open the store and see something problematic. Overdoses, mental health episodes, or the space desecrated by trash, needles, and frequently human waste. Complex social problems not found in the barista training manual. Quite frankly, I'm not qualified to deal with and neither are my staff. I think we're starting to be expected to be first responders, social workers, uh, crisis managers. Um, in addition to our conventional job, which is actually just making coffees. He says a handful of people who frequently defile the washroom also steal from customers and cause disturbances outside. He describes what happened earlier this week when he tried to put out a man's campfire in the doorway. He follows me, throws the log still on fire at the entrance to the cafe. So there's burning embers all in front of the cafe, smoke's billowing in. This guy's swearing as he wanders off. The pandemic has exposed a lack of public facilities in Vancouver. We've heard from homeless residents and advocates about how hard it is to find one. And it's typically private businesses providing what is a very public need. The burden of the public 
problems are put onto people like me. In a statement, the city claims it's listening. Quote, we are committed to expanding washroom access and are currently finalizing details of new initiatives that will provide immediate action on this issue. This work includes the installation of two new multi-stall washroom trailers and extended hours at a number of city facilities. End quote. Police say they're also listening. After hearing these concerns, we're going to be dedicating extra resources along that area, the Main Street corridor. Promises they hope make Vancouver's daily grind easier to swallow. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. A new memorial will soon be in place on the Vancouver waterfront titled Magic and Lethal. It's a giant wind-driven sculpture that will be installed as a memorial for those who have lost their lives due to asbestos exposure. The location near the convention center is where for decades asbestos was loaded on ships for export. Even though asbestos use was banned in Canada in 2018, every year 600 Canadians lose their life to asbestos-related illnesses. The sculpture will be installed this spring. Still ahead, some sweet temptation. Every week we were selling, selling out like up to 30 dozen buns a week. Success that's so sweet for a couple who lost their jobs to COVID. But first, a new study reveals what shipping traffic is doing to West Coast orcas. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Marine biologists have known for years that ship traffic in the ocean is having a detrimental effect on many species, including orcas. Now, researchers in Washington state have found it causes particular harm to female orcas. And as Linda Aylesworth reports, it could have serious consequences for the survival of the species. They are among the most extensively studied whales in the world, and rightly so. With just 74 southern resident killer whales left, some say they're on the verge of extinction. Southern resident killer whales are endangered, and, and every step and effort is being made. Uh, to give them a break from the different stresses that are there. Now, yet another study, this one out of Washington State by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, looking at the effect that boats and ships have on their feeding behavior. What the NOAA researchers did is they put on um, cell phone-like devices onto the backs of killer whales using suction cups. The tags, which fall off after about three hours, record sound in the depth of the whale's dives. And they can pick up things such as if they captured fish, because you can hear the crunches on this device. Using data gathered from seven females and six males, they came up with an unexpected finding, that when boats came within 400 meters or closer, one sex reacted differently than the other. They found that, that the females switched from what appear to be feeding-type dives, to non-feeding dives. In other words, they stopped feeding. And that could be causing a significant problem for a species already struggling to find enough prey. Females often are, are you know, caring for young. Um, many of the females are actually capturing fish and sharing with their sons. Um, those that are lactating need the fish to produce the milk. One theory as to why females change their behavior in the presence of marine vessels? You know, females bear more responsibility for the care of others. And, uh, and maybe they stop just to ensure that their offspring are safe. It is yet another potential piece of the puzzle that could explain the precipitous decline of these magnificent creatures. Linda Aylesworth, Global News.
Some beautiful shots out on the water there. All right, let's check in with uh, Christy, who's got a look at weather. I noticed it was a lot lighter than it has been or that I've noticed. Uh, almost 5 o'clock, it was still light out there tonight. Yes, so during my five o'clock hit in the last, well, month or so, it's been so dark. And then just this week now, we've started to see a bit of that, uh, at least the last bits of light during my last hit. It's dark now, though. Uh, We are, but we had a gorgeous day today. We had cloud cover, but still the sun was able to peek through here and there. Here's a look at the temperature. So eight degrees in Vancouver, normal for this time of year is six. So we're still above normal, but we are gradually going to see that trend towards cooler air mass. Now, tomorrow, we still still have more sunshine on the way. So it may be just a touch cooler tomorrow. It is certainly going to be a gradual trend towards those cooler conditions. So here's an example uh, of what we could see for the Metro Vancouver region. If you can let me know, there you go, four degrees as your high through the weekend and on overnight lows close to the freezing mark. So weather will see the snow on Saturday night into Sunday morning, still a little uncertain. So I really urge you to keep tuning back in. It's always very finicky, I guess you could say, the snow forecast for the south coast areas. Temperatures will drop over the weekend and the central Okanagan region as well. So we've got um, a slight chance of showers overnight, just as the system tracks south of our region, but overall some blue sky, and then there's that system rolling in Saturday night into Sunday morning, and that brings in that chance of snow. But whether we'll see that uh, lower elevations or near the water, that's... um, has yet to be determined. So there you go. Enjoy the sunshine over the next little while. Basically Friday and most of Saturday also looking sunny. And then it's late Saturday that we'll start to see increasing cloud with that potential for snow. I wish I was working over the weekend so that I could deliver all the details for you. But I know Yvonne and Kasia will be right on it for you. Here's your central windows weather window from the Saanich area. This was the sunrise this morning. Beautiful, uh, well, reds and pinks there, as you can see, you know what they say. Red skies in the morning, sailors take warning. All right, Chris, back to you. Gorgeous shot once again. All right, thanks very much, Christy. A Moose Jaw resident is expecting to find himself in the record books one day following an epic day of drumming. Jared Dormer played his box drum for nearly 26 hours straight last Friday. In an attempt at a Guinness World Record, Dormer says it all started when he found himself with a little downtime during the pandemic and spent almost six months preparing. Physically, it was tough, but he says the mental game was the biggest challenge. Kind of like around the five or six hour mark into it, I, I mentally was like, you know, what am I doing? It's, it's two in the morning. Um, you know, like my body's already starting to hurt. Um, but then I'd get, you know, some well wishes from, from the live stream or from the few people that were allowed to be in attendance and um, kind of just pushed me through. Dormer is sending in video of the event along with witness and timekeeping statements to make it all official. He expects to hear back from Guinness in about 12 weeks. Maybe Jimmy Patterson's watching. He can, he can vouch for him. Doesn't he own the Guinness World Record book? Yeah, or Ripley's Believe It or Not. One of those. One of the two. Anyway, the the, the question I have is, I'm more impressed by the fact he didn't go to the bathroom for 26 hours. Is there a a, bathroom break allowed in there, I wonder? I'll have to check the notes on that one. I'm not totally sure. Normally there is, right? Yeah, you'd have to. Otherwise, otherwise you wouldn't want to watch that. (laughs) Um, Okay, despite starting the year one in three, the Canucks say they aren't panicking. Every team goes through adversity every year at some point in the year, sometimes two or three four times. 
Well, they start a three-game homestand tonight against the Montreal Canadiens, three straight games against the Habs, and there could be some lineup changes. All right, we'll check in a little later. And an unemployed couple rolls with it, creating opportunity after their COVID-related job loss. The box drummer did have built-in meal and bathroom breaks. Squire won't need one for the duration of his <laughs> No, it's only five minutes. I can hold <laughs> out for that long. Uh, we know that uh, many Maple Leaf fans and Canadian fans live among us. We see them every time Toronto and Montreal make a visit to Rogers Arena. But this year is going to be very frustrating for those folks. The Leafs and Habs are going to be here a combined nine times to play the Canucks, but of course nobody will be allowed in to watch these games. Tonight the Habs start three games and four nights against the Canucks, who are on home ice for the first time after losing three of four in Alberta. Jay is down at the arena, or at least he was earlier today, and he has more in tonight's game, which will include some lineup moves. For the first time in 316 days, the Vancouver Canucks are playing at Rogers Arena, and we're about to find out if the comforts of home and a change of scenery will help the Canucks end this three-game losing streak. A week ago, they went into Edmonton and soundly beat the Oilers 5-3, but since then, they've given up 13 goals while scoring just four. Making matters worse, Vancouver's power play is yet to click. It is now 0 for 15. You add it all up, and you can see why the Canucks have lost three straight hockey games. It is early. We and played great hockey. I think when you can go back and look at all the games, we had a really good first game. Uh, second game wasn't as good. Obviously, their power play was good. Last game, we had probably our best 20 minutes of the year and, um, you know, a second period that, that really cost us. Tonight marks the first of three consecutive games against the Montreal Canadiens. Habs two wins in their opening three games to sit second overall behind the front-running Toronto Maple Leafs. Canucks are going to have their hands full against a Canadiens team that has had no trouble finding the back of the net. 12 goals and counting for Montreal. That's second best in the division. You know, so far the guys have done a really good job with that. Defense have been boxing out, letting our goalies get uh, one shot and clearing out rebounds. And you know, I think that's uh, a big part of the success is, is getting your clears, winning face-offs and trying to disrupt teams from, from breaking into your zone with control as much as possible. I mean, I, I just think um, you know, I got, it's early in the year. There's, we have some new guys. There's, you know, there's still things we have to clean up for sure. Um, obviously, we're, we're not happy with some of our play, but, um, you know, I think tightening up defensively is, is one of our priorities and, uh, and limiting their chances. I mean, I think um, it's just kind of you, we have to, you know, keep working on it and and, I mean, we've only played four games, so you know, there's still things that we have to get better at. During this morning's pregame skate, Travis Green with his defensive pairings. For the first time, Nate Schmidt was shuffled from the right side of the blue line over to the left. And he's also paired alongside a new D partner in Tyler Myers. It also looks like Jalen Chatfield will make his NHL debut as he paired alongside Alex Edler. Jordy Ben is back from his COVID quarantine. He skated beside Ole Levy, but that looks to be the odd D pairing out. So there's a strong possibility that lineup changes are coming when the puck drops just after 7 p.m. Reporting inside Rogers Arena, where for some strange reason there's a strong smell of popcorn, Jay Janor, Global Sports. That's Jim Benning's new cologne. It's made by Orville Redenbacher. <laughs>
The uh, NHL has uh, fined the Washington Capitals $100,000 because players were not wearing masks while in close proximity to each other off the ice. Meanwhile, the Carolina Hurricanes are not going to play any games until at least Saturday because five players have been put on the league's COVID list. Now, last night we found out George Springer is leaving the Astros to play center field for the Toronto Blue Jays, and he's getting paid $150 million over six years to do it. Toronto's biggest signing ever. He certainly should make the uh, Jays even more formidable offensively. He can hit for both average and power. He is excellent defensively, but he's 31, so the Jays need to contend right away for a championship to make this move pay off. After 17 years, number 17 is retiring from the NFL. Phillip Rivers calling it quits after spending the past season with the Colts. Before that, of course, he was with the Chargers. Fifth all-time in passing yards, but never got to play in a Super Bowl. Uh, he has nine children, Philip Rivers, and he'll be coaching a high school football team in Alabama now that he's retired from the NFL. All right, to uh, Huge game then. Under the Premier League action from Fulham. It's Manchester United and Fulham, which scores first. Adamola Lookman with the goal there. Now it's 1-1, and Paul Pogba, the big goal. 2-1 the final at Craven Cottage. Nice name for a stadium. And in Sweden, Women's World Cup Ski Cross, Mariel Thompson of Whistler started second, coming out of the gate, stayed that way all the way down the hill, trailing Fanny Smith of Switzerland. So she gets her 45th, Thompson that is, podium finish. Uh, Reese Howden of Cultus Lake was fifth in the men's side of things. All right, that's it. All right. Good luck to the Canucks tonight. Thanks very much, Squire. Here's Andrew and now the preview of Global News at 11. Anne? Thanks, Chris. More on the search tonight for a Port Moody woman who's gone missing. Trina Hunt was last seen by her husband Monday morning at their Heritage Mountain home. An air and ground search has so far failed to find any trace of her. And new figures today from BC paramedics show they were called out on average every 20 minutes to deal with an overdose last year. The small BC town where they saw the largest increase and the surprising place where calls actually dropped. Those findings and more tonight at 11. Chris? All right, Anne, thanks very much for that. And up next for us, a sinfully successful business that was only possible because of the pandemic. Leave BC is brought to you by Pacific Blue Cross. Flexible small business health benefits for challenging times. To survive the pandemic, you've got to believe BC ingenuity and adaptability will help pull us through. A Chilliwack couple is a perfect example, cooking up new careers when COVID stole their jobs. Catherine Urquhart has their sweet recipe for success. Generous amounts of whipped peanut butter icing is piped onto fresh out of the oven, dinner-sized cinnamon buns. Just one of the drool-worthy confections at Cinnamon Bun Co. Also on the menu at this Chilliwack bakery, apple fritter sticky buns and ones covered in cream cheese. These ooey-gooey buns, priced at $3.75 and up, 
typically sell out before the end of the day. For now, we have uh, a uh, order window and then a pickup window, and so the customers are able to come and get their product really quickly. Kerry Cron and his wife Claudette started Cinnamon Bun Co. last spring, when the pandemic resulted in both of them losing their jobs at the Fraser River Fishing Lodge. Well, definitely the biggest hurdle was uh, just figuring out how, what we can do when we're, when we're both home. We have the kids, we have mortgage like everybody else. Initially, they started out small. We um, started on Sundays just yeah. making buns here. As soon as everyone kind of went into lockdown. Yeah. And then we were able to make buns here and then deliver them to people's door. And we built our business and clientele that way. Their former employer allowed them to use the lodge's prep kitchen for free. And when it was uh, time to basically shut down the operation, Kerry had an idea with his uh, cinnamon buns. And, but he had nowhere to go, so we offered him to use our facilities at no charge. Word spread quickly about Kerry's cinnamon buns, his success prompting him to open a bakery on Young Road. Now he has six employees. It's been amazing. We're so thankful for our customers. And we're so thankful for uh, um, just the support that Chilliwack has shown us. This Chilliwack success story is soon to have another chapter, a food in the works with Kerry planning to take his cinnamon bun sensations on the road. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. He's got to park that thing outside of 7850 Enterprise Street, I think. That's, I'm not, you I'm have not lots seen, of customers. I've not seen you react to a story like that in a long time. As soon as you heard what the icing was made of. <laughs> Peanut butter. Yeah. I'm on board. Okay, last word on weather before we go, Christy. Sure. Enjoy the sunshine over the next few days. It is going to get a little bit colder, but at least the sun will be out until late Saturday. And again, uh, Yvonne and Kasha will be here to give you all the details about the potential for snow. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. And thank you for watching. Have a great night, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow.